Thank you. Thank you and welcome. I'm Father Mitch Packer and welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. And we really went far this time. Now, if you're looking through your stack of devotional books, thinking to yourself, I read all these already. I'm kind of bored. I want something else. Uh, stop your whining. Tonight, our guest is here to blow some fresh wind into your spiritual sails with some old, but in ways kind of new, devotional writings from major saints and other figures in the history of the church. Now, before we get to our guest, we'd like to talk with EWTN's Jack Williams and find out what is going on in radio next. And I think I have an idea. Jack, you have an idea. tell us well, tell We've us got a very exciting on. announcement. You know, last week on EWTN television, yes. we aired a series that Mary Rice Hassan did for us called The, Trans the Transgender Movement, What Catholics Need to Know. Yep. Very well received. It's a beautifully put together uh, well-balanced uh, piece that she's done for us. It's, it's really spectacular. Mm -hmm. So we're going to bring that to radio next week during EWTN Open Line. So during the first half hour of the program each day, we'll play the episode for that day. And then in the second half hour, the host of that day, for instance, on Wednesday, Mitch Pacwa, Father Mitch Pacwa on Wednesdays, will comment on what we've just heard and we'll take phone calls from our listeners, and they'll yeah. be able to uh, ask questions about the material. Mm -hmm. So that'll be every day next week, November 7th through the 11th, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, and it'll encore at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday. And you can pick that up on any of your AM or FM uh, EWTN radio affiliates around the mm -hmm. United States, on Sirius XM Channel 130, the EWTN app, EWTN.com, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, uh, all of your streaming platforms. You can find uh, EWTN Radio, and you can watch this week-long open line event, uh, the transgender movement, what Catholics should know. Yeah. This, I think, is very important. Um, there's a lot at stake. All right. And this uh, you can watch all this transgender movement, what Catholics need to know. Uh, anytime you would like, if you go to EWTN On Demand, and you can get that at ondemand.ewtn.com. Ondemand.ewtn.com. We'll be back in just a couple minutes with tonight's guest, so please stay with us. Our guest tonight is a Benedictine monk from the Abbey of the Most Holy Trinity in New Norcia. Now, the old Norcia is in Italy. We'll wait a second to find out where the new Norcia is. So we'll, we'll find out what country that's in. But this Benedictine has great expertise as a translator of medieval Latin literature 
and this has enabled him to bring rare books, manuscripts that were written by some of the greatest saints and holy figures of the church back to life. Now, one is Renaissance, St. Aloysius Gonzaga, but others are pretty farther, much farther back. Uh, St. Anselm and St. Edelfonsus of Toledo. Probably a lot of you don't know him. And then also from the Renaissance, Thomas Kempis. So these have not ever been published in English. First time. And to tell us about this translation process and how these spiritual works can inspire our own prayer and devotional lives, please welcome Father Robert Nixon of the uh, Order of St. Benedict. Father, welcome. Thanks very much, Father Mitch. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, as people start to hear you speak, they're going to figure out that you're not from Alabama. <laughs> Indeed, you've, you've got that right, Mitch. So uh, I uh, hail from North Queensland, which is um, a fairly remote part of Australia. And from there, I moved to the monastery of New Northia, which is how we say it over there. And uh, it's close to Perth, so diagonally opposite on the, the furthermost extreme of Australia. Also a quite remote part of Australia. So. Yeah, it, it, it's, it, when you see even the architecture in Perth, it, it reminds me a little bit of some of our Western style architecture, more wood and things. So it's, it's a different architecture from Eastern Australia. And, for folks to understand too, Australia is just about the same size as the lower 48 states. So not too different in, in width and, and breadth. Uh, different shape, of course, but just about that same distance across. And it's a beautiful country. If you haven't been to Australia, you ought to go. It's a, 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 Absolutely. Well worth visiting, if for nothing is. else, to see the kangaroos. Yeah, the, and the wallabies and all the rest. Yeah, it's cool critters out there. So you, uh, when, when I heard about you coming as a guest, I say, this is exactly what I expect out of Benedictines rescuing important ancient books of the church and making them available to the rest of us. What got you interested in translating these non-translated books? Well, Father Mitch, you know, there's such a treasure of church literature um, written since virtually the very beginning of the church, mm -hmm. right through to recent times. And um, the language of the Western Catholic Church has been, has been Latin. Until about a hundred years ago, it didn't matter particularly much that they were only available in Latin because, you know, a lot of people read Latin as a, as a natural language. In fact, if you went to school, you usually learned Latin. It, it was considered a, a compulsory foundational subject, absolutely. And it didn't matter if you were Catholic or not. You know, all the founders of our country, except for uh, one of the Carols, uh, were Protestant, but they all knew Latin. Indeed, indeed. They, they, they did their work in Latin. So it's a kind of cornerstone of our Western civilization and in particular of our Catholic Church. 
And I realize that there's such a vast treasure of, of works which, which have not been translated. In most cases, the average person hasn't even heard of. And um, I thought, you know, it would really be a fantastic thing to bring these to light, to share them with a the contemporary readership. And this is very much a part of the Benedictine tradition because for us Benedictines throughout most of the Middle Ages, our main industry was copying out books by hand. Mm -hmm. and, the and, and the reason you did it by hand was? Well, of course, this predates the invention of the printing press. Exactly, exactly. And the Benedictine monasteries also functioned as centers of learning. So if someone wanted their son or daughter to learn to read and write, they would send them to a Benedictine monastery for a few years. Mm -hmm. So the transmission of knowledge, this uh, tradition of, of, of literature, of scholarship, of reading, is very much a part of our Benedictine monastic spirituality. So it was something which I felt was allowing me to continue in, in this ancient tradition, which I love so dearly. There's uh, something that I, I, I really urge our audience to study more about the history of the Benedictines, because you know during the time of the barbarian invasions, the barbarians wanted gold, you know, iron for swords and all you know those kind of treasures. They had no interest in literature, but the Benedictines were the ones who saved not only church documents, but any documents from obliteration. Indeed. And that's been, St. Benedict himself talks about a library in his rule. And Benedictine monasteries very quickly spread throughout Europe. And they were a civilizing influence. This was, this was at the time of the decline of the Roman Empire. And against the barbarian forces and everything, they brought order, bought peace. Uh, and they bought Christian values, which, of course, is the, the very most important thing of all. Even a large number of towns and cities in Europe that had been wiped out by the barbarians, it was the Benedictines who went into places, built a church and a monastery. People gathered around it for peace. And new cities came out of these monasteries. They were the start of even Munich, Germany, is named Monachium, indeed, Monastery. Indeed. And uh, New Dorsia, one of our unique features is that we are the only monastic village in Australia. So we're not only the monastery, but we've got this little village which has sprung up around us. And that's very much um, close to what happened during the Middle Ages, where villages would spring up around monasteries and little by little would expand and, and become great cities. And a lot of the great cities in Europe can actually be traced back mm -hmm. to uh, the presence of the Benedictine monks in those areas. Exactly, exactly. And, I, 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 and as you said, it, they also became centers for learning, that the, the universities have to trace their roots in Benedictine monasteries. And later on, the, you know, from there came cathedral schools. And from those schools came the universities. Uh, the, you know, basically, the Catholic Church invented the university, but Benedictines were absolutely essential for that. We were very much 
at the forefront of that. And, and when the mendicant orders emerged, which was much, much later than the And Benedictine by mendicants, order, you mean? I mean the, the Franciscans, the Dominicans, yes. and so forth. Um, the order of St. Benedict, of course, is the most ancient one in the Catholic Church. That's it right. predates all those other orders by, you know, 800 years or yeah, so. Yeah. And um, they largely modeled their rules, their approach on the original rule, on the original template, the archetype of a Catholic religious order, which is the, the rule of St. Benedict, which, exactly. um, which still continues as the foundation of our monastic life in, in the contemporary world. As a matter of fact, uh, another little side mentioned in the mendicants, one of the great things at um, the cave where St. Benedict first became a hermit is that on the wall there is a painting from the 1200s and it includes a miniature painting of St. Francis of Assisi while he was there. Indeed. It's a, it's a contemporary. So you all have, you know, take up modern things like Franciscans and you, you include them too in your literature. This project, um, when did you start learning Latin yourself? Well, my background is as, as a musician and I was very interested in liturgical music uh, all along. Yep. Uh, so I, I knew a little smidgen of Latin and then learned a little of some other related languages, Spanish, French, Italian. And um, when I entered the seminary, which was about 15 years ago or so, it, it was just something which really drew me and came very, very naturally to me. And uh, I felt such a, a love of the writings of these saints and the importance of the Latin language in the Catholic Church that I felt it was really something God was calling me to. Mm -hmm. Uh, because it's something which is very much, unfortunately, on the decline, even within the church. Yeah. Um, so I, I felt, well, this is what God is, is asking me to do. And when I got to our monastery, of course, with its fantastic library, we have a, a huge library, over 80,000 volumes. Um, and uh, I was just inspired to uh, think, well, I need to delve into this. These books which are going unread, um, which are falling into oblivion, and this is going to be my, my particular mission. One, something that uh, to, was done back, I believe in the 1800s, isn't that when Minier was? Indeed, yeah. indeed. Uh, this was a collection of as many of the ancient writings of the church in Latin, and then another collection in of all Greek. the Greek. Indeed, indeed. And you all have that collection, we, those we, collections in your library. We're very blessed to have that, the complete uh, patrologies, both the Latin and the Greek. And that goes right back to the days of the founder of our monastery, Rosendo Salvado, back in the middle of the 19th century. And although the monastery was very small, he saw that as being the foundation of monastic learning. Mm -hmm. And he worked hard. He said a lot of masses to, to, to pay for this uh, wonderful collection of books, which we're terribly blessed to have. And... I've kind of, when I entered the monastery, I set it as a lifelong project to get through all of, not to translate all of it, of course, uh, which would be impossible in one lifetime, but to, uh, to make myself familiar with it all, because it's, it's our heritage there, yeah. preserved in writing. And this, uh, so folks understand, there's just a fraction 
of all of those Greek and Latin writers that has been translated? A very small fraction, uh, Father Mitch. So, of course, we've got our famous ones, Augustine, Bernard of Clairvaux, and so forth. Ambrose. Ambrose. Uh, and their works have mostly been translated, but if you think there's innumerable other saints, um, innumerable popes and so forth, whose work has, has remained untranslated, because translating is, is a big project and uh, you have to think, well, is this going to sell enough copies to make it worthwhile? Mm -hmm. But th there's something else too. Um, as a person translates from one language yeah. to another, you end up learning that language better yourself, do you not? Very much so, very much so, because you have to consider not only the literal meaning, but to think, how can I convert this into the English language? And of course, every language has different dynamics, different processes, mm -hmm. uh, different semantics. So it's not a, a question just a matching word for word, like Google Translate or something. Yeah. But it's a, it's a question of trying to, to um, immerse yourself in the spirit, the tone, the beauty of the original, and somehow to reproduce that in our own uh, beautiful English language. In some of these books that you've translated, for instance, uh, St. Anselm of Canterbury, his Passion of Christ Through the Eyes of Mary. I I've never heard of that book. No. And I want to thank you for translating that. Uh, you know, because Our Lady is there at the cross. And to have his meditations on watching Christ's passion through the eyes of a mother. You know, I've been with mothers as they watched their children die. It's a horrible experience mm. for them, especially, of course. It's painful to be there. But he is able to capture some very important insights into our Lord as he sees her it, he sees uh, Christ's death through the eyes of Our Lady. Yeah, very much so. And this, this was a work written uh, after Anselm had gone through a period of, of prayer and fasting and meditation to prepare himself for this. And then he experienced this vision and has a dialogue with the Blessed Virgin. And she recounts uh, the, the, the agonies, the anguish, the anxiety of, of this experience of beholding her son make the ultimate sacrifice for the salvation of, of humanity. And uh, I think to contemplate Mary at the cross is, uh, is one of the things which, which fills the heart with compassion, with, with love. Yeah. Yeah. And this is so important that we let our hearts be open to being touched, to being set aflame with this, this uh, celestial fire of love. In, uh, it reminds me of when I went to see to the to the theater to see the Passion of the Christ, and in that movie, the experience of Our Lady and Mel Gibson didn't know about this book, you know, because it wasn't translated, uh, and yet he did this. He helped people see Christ's suffering through the Blessed Mother's eyes. And I heard non-Catholics in the audience of the theater saying, wow, 
Now I get why the Catholics love Mary so much. It helped them to see what our devotion to her is about. It's helping us to get this view of Christ from someone who loved him more than anybody. I mean, any mother is going to have a special love for her son. That's just human nature. But this is also with supernature involved, with grace involved. Yes, indeed, Father Mitch. So it was a special mystical bond which existed between Jesus and Mary. And we can comprehend the, the bond of maternal love, which is the most unconditional and uh, unfailing form of love which can possibly be conceived. We think uh, Christ was undergoing this most horrendous suffering. When you see a person you truly love suffer, you often feel, you feel pain just as great yeah. as theirs. And for this reason, you know, um, we talk about the passion of Christ and the calm passion of Mary, the sharing in the passion. So she was a participant in the, in the mystery of all the mysteries of our salvation, the mystery of the incarnation. Of course. She then, had to be there for his birth. He, indeed, indeed. And um, so in a, in a mystical sense, she was really one with him. And it's very appropriate that we celebrate the feast of her immaculate heart on the day after we celebrate the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Very much so. And you chose some other books here. Um, you seem to like St. Anselm of Canterbury. Yeah. Why did you translate more than one of his books? Indeed. Well, of course, St. Anselm of Canterbury is a great doctor of the church. Yes. He's also uh, one of our most beloved Benedictine patriarchs. There you go. So he was uh, instrumental in, in the church in England in bringing about a good relationship between, between the crown and the church. He was, a, he was a great advocate of the freedom of the church and the Catholicity of the church. And his own life was so fascinating. You know, he born in Italy, became an abbot in France, and then from there was transferred and became uh, Archbishop of Canterbury. And in, which is in yeah, Britain. Indeed. And, and what were his years again? Uh, he lived in the, uh, of the, uh, in the 11th century. Right. Yeah. So was, was he there when William of he, Normandy? Yes, he was, he was, he was. Conquered. And, and in fact, in the biography of his life there, um, William of Normandy, or William the Conqueror, was, uh, was actually a big supporter of his. Mm -hmm. So at that stage, there was a close relationship between the Catholic Church and, and between the English crown, mm -hmm. which, it, which varied over the course of his lifetime. So at different times, he had to fight quite hard for the freedom and independence of the church. And, and to, to know how important that is, there's always been a temptation of political leaders to try and use the church for their the advancement of their political power. King David tried that when he was bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And a lot of people remember the story when the soldier stopped the Ark from falling off the cart and then was struck that dead. came to a bad end. Yeah, it? yeah, yeah, died. And so, and people said, well, that wasn't fair. And David got mad, but here was the problem. Soldiers weren't supposed to be anywhere near the Ark. Only the priests were allowed to carry it on poles on their shoulders. 
not in ox carts. So he had taken it and made it political and had soldiers guarding it. And that kind of attempt to politicize it led to the soldier's death. Afterwards, he then, and you don't see a big deal of it, but the, the text of Scripture says he brought the ark. Uh, the priests carried the ark on their shoulders after that. You know, and this is what Anselm is trying to do is make sure that the secular doesn't try to use the church. Very important. Indeed. Absolutely, uh, Mitch. And I mean, we have to look out for this to make sure that our church is never about secular values, never about pr promoting a, a social agenda, but always about the salvation of souls. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so in choosing some of these, how did you choose these books, The Passion of Christ Through the Eyes of Mary and The Glories of Heaven? What brought you to want to translate yeah. those well, books? You know, I, I was really drawn to the glories of heaven because I think uh, the afterlife, the realities of heaven and hell, are something which perhaps we don't spend all that much time thinking about. Um, and I think meditating upon both of these, the joys of heaven, as well as the torments of hell, as well as the ultimate nature of the judgment day, which every single soul is going to have to face. Mm -hmm. um, something in the rule of St. Benedict says, uh, be in fear of the day of judgment. Always have death before your eyes. And this is something which makes so much sense because our mortal lives pass away so quickly. Mm -hmm. Our time here is really a, a preparation for the, for the great and hopefully glorious eternity which awaits each one of our souls. And so I think this meditation upon the, the glories of heaven really uh, inspires the soul, inflames it with the love of, of divine and eternal things, which is the ultimate motivation, this, uh, this love beyond any love, which draws every human heart to itself. And this is, this is God himself. And one of the things about that approach, uh, you hear often fairly secular or people who are somewhat um, not re very religious say, well, why are you worried about heaven? Why are you thinking about heaven? I mean, what about this life right here? Mm. And, you know, the, I don't know how y'all are in Australia, but we Americans sometimes get a little practical. You know, show me something for right now. And so... Yeah. The thing that, and it's, yeah. it's a virtue, but it's the seeking the glories of heaven. Indeed, indeed. That and inspires greatness. That, that's, that's quite right, um, Father Mitch. And what you said about concern with the here and now, you know, I think that is actually something which holds back the soul, can mm. entrap people in this material reality, this world exactly. of time and space. And um, we know it's just passing. Yeah. That so much of this world is illusion that so many things which promise great happiness or perfect satisfaction lead to disappointment, that nothing in this world ultimately is to uh, be eternally trusted. And this, I think, impels the, the soul to seek something beyond it. And every human soul is always seeking something beyond this world, desiring something far above this world. 
And for that reason, I think we, we need to recognize it as a desire for the joys of heaven, a desire for the love of God. And those two things can't be separated. They're one and the same. And one of the ironies is that those who are inspired by St. Anselm to contemplate the glories of heaven are the ones who, as we just were talking, came up with preserving the books, inventing the university. It was people seeking heaven who invented the concept mm. of the hospital. There had never been hospitals till the Christians mm. invented the idea. And orphanages, yeah. mental asylums. It, it's just amazing oh. that the search for heaven, and not to mention the beautiful cathedrals, who goes to Europe on vacation to look at factories? You go there to see the cathedrals. You've, you're very much right uh, there, Father Mitch. So it's this um, awareness of the transcendent, this desire for the transcendent, which actually infuses us in this life to do all that's great and good and noble. Yeah. I mean, if human beings thought about nothing but the concrete, the here and now, the material, we would pretty soon reduce ourselves to nothing more than animals. Yeah. So it's this, this desire for God, this desire for eternity. And that's why the thought of a completely secular society, I think, is, is terrifying indeed. Because you take the eternal out of the equation, you take God out of the equation, you take the immortality of the soul out of the equation, and, and we're left with a, a very empty a nothingness, a, a kind of passing material theater in this world. Um, empty, or in many cases, outright ugly. Take a look at communist art. You'll see what I mean. We have to take a little break. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. We want to get some of your questions and comments, so please stay with us. Welcome back. We are speaking with Father Robert Nixon, who is from a Benedictine Abbey of the Most Blessed Trinity. Uh, Most Holy Trinity. Most Holy Almost Trinity. Most Holy Trinity, normally known as New Norcia, because that's where we're located. Right, yeah. right. But we've got, because we don't want Holy Trinity going against Blessed Trinity here. I don't. <laughs> Sanctissima Trinity. Yes, okay. So we've got the Most Holy Trinity. Um, in Australia, New Norcia, as they say in Australia, uh, is in the western part of uh, Australia. Are you ready for some questions? Indeed I am. All right, let's start off with Mary. Mary in New Hampshire. Yes. What, what can we do for you? Uh, the Paternoster. Uh, heaven is plural first, and then it's singular. And I wondered why that is, and if it's the same in any of those other languages that he knows. Well, I'm trying to um, yes. take, oh wait, no wonder, I've, 
gotta go back. Hold on. I'm looking for. I have my Greek New Testament here. Yeah. So in in the Latin Bible, um, generally the plural is used for heaven. So heavens is a literal translation of that. But often in English we say singular heaven. Of course, it means basically the same thing. In contemporary English, if you say heavens, people think you're talking about the sky as an astronomical phenomenon, as opposed to heaven, the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. So there is a, sometimes occasional variance in usage between the two senses of heaven as the eternal destination of the soul, as the place of glory, and the heavens, which is normally taken as meaning the sky above us. And one, one of the um, other things, too, is in Hebrew itself, heaven is a dual. Now, Hebrew is a, you know, the Semitic language, all the Semitic languages have this structure. They have the singular form, they have the plural form, and they also have a dual form. So, two, like, you don't say eyes, you say two eyes. Uh, so, ein um, is an eye. If you said lots of eyes, it'd be einim, but nobody would say that. But enayim is double eyes, and so same with heaven. Shemayim is double, uh, and so I'm sure that they're reflecting the Semitic language. Our Lord spoke this in Aramaic, which also has the same kind of structure. They they also have the dual, and I suspect that the plural is, um, you know, reflecting that he, uh, original Semitic language. Uh, that, that, that's part of it, too. So, um, there, yeah, and as much as I would know at this oh, well, point. thanks for that insight, yeah. Father Mitch. We have uh, another question. Ma'am, where are you from? From Tulsa, Oklahoma. Nice town, very nice town. So, so what, what can we do for you? I was wondering, Father Robert, do you have a goal in terms of the rate of translation that you're aspiring to or how many books that you're uh, going to yeah, translate? Well, well, I don't have uh, my, my ultimate goal, of course, is the kingdom of heaven. On, on an earthly level, though, here, um, I translate at a very variable rate. So on, on some occasions, I can do like you know, thousands of words within one day. And then other days, it's, it's much slower. Of course, it depends upon my monastic duties at the time. So um, as, a, as, a, as a monastery, we all have jobs to do. We need to take care of things, to take care of our guests and so forth. So it depends upon the available time that I have and also varies quite a lot from one text to another. So a straightforward narrative text might be really very easy to do uh, at, a, at a quite rapid rate, whereas a text which is poetic mm -hmm. or philosophical might demand a lot more reflection upon the choice of the most apt and apposite English word to convey what the author is trying to express. Yeah, and, and it, it certainly would depend on the difficulty of the writer too. There's a, some have more very, difficult expression. Very, very much so. Uh, St. Augustine would be more difficult to translate. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. So some people assume that the Latin language is just kind of one homogenous mass, but in fact it varies immensely. So we have some Latin, which is very easy, like Bonaventure, Thomas Aquinas, and so yeah, forth. If you go back uh, to classical Latin, to, um, to the classical authors, uh, Cicero, and then Augustine and Ambrose, who were taking those as their models, 
it becomes uh, substantially more difficult. So there is a quite a wide variation in the level of complexity uh, of Latin expression. And it, it's worth noting that the Latin author who wrote more books than anybody else in Latin is St. Augustine. That's true. And some people, scholars, have even said that he is the greatest Latin author of all time. Yeah. That's even including people like Cicero, Cicero. Julius Caesar, uh, and so forth. Yeah. And by the way, to go back to that question, I found the, the, the lines in the New Testament uh, where it's different. So it's our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's plural. And that would reflect that Hebrew and Aramaic background of heaven being this duels. But Greek doesn't have duels, so they just put plural. But then when it's in singular form, that it's uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And there it's singular because you're not talking about being up in heaven, but you're contrasting heaven with earth. That's why it's singular. So that's what you have going on there. This is, this is why, you have, but you have to look at texts and see what's actually written down there. So it's important to know language. Uh, and if you don't know these other ancient languages, at least learn English well. This is good. I like to, I always correct the grammar of our altar service at church. They, oh, yeah. And um, I'd let them know it's not just to make you sound nice. It's not to make you sound like you're educated. But grammar is the basis for logic. This is one of the insights of Aristotle. Hmm. And that you learn to th two things by learning good grammar. One, you learn to think more logically by using the grammar correctly. Secondly, you learn to think before you speak. They should teach that in Washington. I digress. We have Mike from Pennsylvania on there. What can we do for you today, Mike? Uh, good evening, Father Mitch. I, I hope I think before I speak here. Um, <laughs> I, have a, I have a question for Father Robert. And I was listening to speak about um, the necessity to teach more about the glories of heaven and the pains of hell. I don't often hear Christian eschatology defined as death, judgment, heaven, hell. But most importantly, I don't hear talks about purgatory. Right. I really, it's in my later life now that I hear, I study more about purgatory. I never really hear it preached. I never hear from our church leaders, let alone to keep our pastors speaking about it enough. And you think about people like Moses, this in, in Meribah, and the price he paid, and David, what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah, his senses, and the prices he paid for sin. Sometimes I wonder if the consequences of our sin and what it means in the next life, and that stage even before, let's say we're fortunate enough to go to heaven, but I have to deal with purgatory. I'd like to hear what Father Robert has to say about the necessity about Teaching more about purgatory. Yeah, great question, Mike. Appreciate that. So, so purgatory is something, I guess, which we uh, tend not to hear about so much in, mm -hmm. in the contemporary church. 
but, uh, and it was a, a doctrine which the church developed over the centuries into, uh, into clarity. If you think about it logically, most people are not in a state of perfect purity, perfect innocence when they leave this world, nor are they in a state which would merit eternal damnation. And so it follows from that that we need to undergo this, this process of purgation, uh, which is, should not be understood only as paying for sins that we've done, but also a process of the detachment of the soul from any disordered attachments, from any uh, affections which draw it away from, from God, from the glory of heaven. So this purification, and we talk about the sufferings of the souls in purgatory. Yes, it is a form of suffering, but it is a suffering imbued with the certainty that uh, eternal glory and eternal peace awaits it. So uh, purgatory, I think, is, is something which we should rejoice in as a, as a manifestation of the mercy of God, that God wants us to come to himself, that he's in fact helping us through the existence of this state of purgatory. And uh, we pray for our, our uh, relatives, our loved ones who have passed away, who may be spending time there. But these prayers um, should not be prayers of, of, of fear, um, or of sorrow, but rather prayers of joy that we, we know now that they're approaching this eternal glory, this supreme peace which exceeds all understanding. And purgatory, of course, is not actually eternity. Purgatory is within a limited space of time, a defined space of time. We don't know how long it is. Of course, there are indulgences and so forth. But any space of time, no matter how large, is only the smallest drop of water in comparison to the endless and fathomless ocean of eternity, which awaits us all, one way or the other. And I, I think people also would do well to understand that purgatory doesn't refer to getting some second chance. That's not what it's about. It's only for the redeemed. Indeed. Only the redeemed go to purgatory. Indeed. So once you're in purgatory, you're, you're assured of getting out at some point in the future. So purgatory is, is you know, is, is not, uh, it, it's something which is granted only to those souls who have obtained eternal salvation. And that eternal salvation, of course, comes through us through the grace, through the mercy of Christ, through his uh, supreme sacrifice upon the cross. And all we need to do is cooperate it, purify ourselves be open to receiving this, this infinite love of God, which is so graciously poured out upon us all. And I would like to recommend, you know, over the years we've done a number of interviews here with Susan Tassoni, uh, sometimes nicknamed the Purgatory Lady, because she's written so many books about purgatory. And they're not just books about understanding, but also books that help us to pray for the souls in purgatory. And I would recommend that you go to our EWTN religious catalog, EWTNRC.com. Her books are very helpful and also uh, especially for helping us to pray for our loved ones who've gone already. Um, so I'd recommend that. Ready for another question? We'll start off, we'll go to Thomas in Tennessee. Thomas, how are you doing? 
I'm doing fine, Father. How about you? Fine as frog here. That's so, good. <laughs> so what can we do for you tonight? Well, I have a question, comment for Father Nixon. One of the complaints that traditional Catholics have is that the Novus Ordo Mass does not, or text, does not uh, accurately reflect the Latin text. Could he comment on that? Uh, uh, thanks, Tom. That's good. Yes, that's a very good question. And um, if you think back a few years ago to the, uh, to the English Missal we used to have mm -hmm. before Pope was that 1972? Indeed. Yes. That was, um, to be honest, it was a very, very inaccurate translation. It was in most cases more of a paraphrase and, and not, not even an unbiased paraphrase, because the, the, retrans or the, the adaptions they gave often had their own theological message embedded in them. Now, in all honesty, the current Roman Missal um, is a pretty decent translation of the Latin. It is, it's um, as accurate, I think, as you can fairly say. Uh, some people criticize it for the English not being so idiomatic. Personally, I find the English in the current Roman Missal uh, on the whole to be superb. It's, it is a good translation. Um, having said that, of course, even for the Novus Ordo, the, um, the normative language remains Latin. And that's something which the church has uh, repeatedly expressed. So we are, the Roman Catholic Church is the Latin rite. So um, Latin is our normative liturgical language. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but, but, but the Novus Ordo in English, I think is, with one or two exceptions, is probably the best translation which could be done. And of course, the church continues to reconsider things hopefully in the light of its, its authentic traditions, to improve that translation. Yeah. And I think it's important for folks to know that the Latin translation of the liturgy that was used, you know, all the way up until 1962, took about a hundred years. You know, um, a lot of folks don't realize, mm. but Saint Hippolytus was the first anti-pope. Did you realize? Yes, yeah, did, yeah, I yeah, did. you would know that then. And one of the reasons he became an anti-pope is that he said, why are they celebrating the liturgy in Latin? We've never celebrated it in Latin. Does that sound familiar? But he, they'd always celebrated the liturgy in Greek in Rome. Yeah. So, I mean, Greek was the prevalent language in Rome at the yeah. time of Christ, um, and Latin was a language in, in, in use and existence. It, over a period of time, though, um, our, our Western church, identified as such, because that, that's what we are, yeah. um, relies upon the language of the Roman Empire, which, which of course, was Latin. And um, this... Well, uh, in the Western Empire. Eastern it, Empire it, still it, was oh, Greek. Continued to use Greek, of yeah. course, of course. Yeah. Uh, so I think uh, the choice of language is, is not something in itself which, which people should be uh, dogmatic about because there is good liturgy and there's bad liturgy. There's reverent liturgy and there's liturgy which isn't so reverent. I think it behooves the Catholic Church uh, to retain Latin as, as the language of our vast depository of literature and also as the traditional language of our literature, uh, of our liturgy, 
but at the same time not to uh, exclude the validity of the use of English in the liturgy. Yeah. You know, the, it, they started translating in the early third century into Latin, and they finished uh, translating in the fourth century. It just took a long time because getting the language right takes time to express accurately and beautifully. You always want to keep those two in balance, the, the beauty of the language and the accuracy of the language. And it, it takes time. Yeah, it takes time. indeed. And, you know, uh, over a course of time in the next couple of decades, I'm very much hoping that, um, that there'll be a, a kind of reconciliation between between the various liturgical streams within the church, which mm -hmm. seem to coexist at the moment, um, to form one liturgy, which is which is truly beautiful, truly reverent, truly faithful to our to our Roman and Latin tradition. Mm -hmm. And a key part of this, I think you were getting at it before. We have to make a distinction between praying the liturgy. Are we, as the priest, praying what he says? Are the people praying the, what they say? Very much so. Or is it a performance? This is something that we, we don't that, want to move toward. That's very true. And I think sometimes uh, it can be overlooked that our Eucharistic prayers are actually not addressed to the congregation. Mm -mm. They're actually addressed to God. The priest is praying on, on behalf of the congregation not only on behalf, but as, as, the, as the voice of the congregation, exactly. as the head of the congregation. Exactly. So these prayers are, are directed to, to, to God, to this supreme reality, this transcendent reality, which is, which is beyond all of us, which our hearts are, are, are longing for, which is the ultimate destiny of our souls. Yeah, that, that's a, a very important part yeah. of this. And to pay attention to the role of each person of the Trinity you know, the, the Eucharistic prayers are addressed to God the Father, but this, the, the core of it are the words of Jesus, this is my body, this is the cup of my blood, that his words are the center, but it still is addressed to God the Father. We're, we're engaging in, mm. we're calling down the Holy Spirit yeah. upon the yeah. gifts. We're entering into the life of the Blessed Trinity, and it's prayerful, not performative. Very much so, very much so. And, and this prayer, the prayers of the Mass, this is my body, this is my blood, make each Mass a participation in the unique sacrifice yeah. of Christ upon the cross. Yeah. And in that sense, you know, you think about there's a, millions and millions of Masses taking place, but they're really part of, all part of this one supreme sacrifice. Yeah, we're not crucifying Jesus again and again. Each Mass is a participation in his once and for all death on the cross. Indeed. That's what's key. We want to encourage you to get Father Robert Nixon's translations of these rare manuscripts, manuscripts written by various saints that helped them become holy and has helped their readers to become holy, but only if they read Latin. So we'd like to make those available to you. Uh, these are published by Tan Publishing in the Resurrection Book Series. And you can get this at 
EWTNRC.com. Uh, that's our religious catalog, EWTNRC.com. And when you put a search in there, search Nixon, and you'll find a number of these books. That you can see none of them are very big. They're, they're all fairly short and fairly small and digestible at a particular time. Father, thank you for coming all the way from Australia to be here with us. Appreciate it very much. And I ask you to join me in blessing our audience. May Almighty God bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. May he lead you in all of your ways by his peace. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And we can bring you Father Nixon and all of our other guests, our other programs and specials, only because the network is brought to you by you. So we ask that you please keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill. And we'll be able to pay all the bills we have and continue to present these programs to you. This was how our Lord inspired Mother to have this brought to you. So we appreciate all the support you can give. Thank you and God bless.